0: And welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond. We are recording this late on Wednesday night. Why, you ask? I don't really know. There's just so much going on right now, and I fear, Cash, that if we were to let this go until later in the week, there would be absolutely no chance, not only of hitting our always fanciful hour or under aspirations, but... Even 80 or under, I think, would have been a non-starter. So we had to get this out of the way midweek. Where should we start here, Cash? We got we got a 70-point game from Joel Embiid. We got a 62-point loss from Carl Anthony Towns. In which he got, got benched. Oh, my goodness. Only Carl Towns, eh? Yeah. Yeah, I guess we're just launching right into this. We we got we too yeah, much to talk I, about to, to and dilly-dally. Man,
1: it it sounds crazy like because we just, I think it was the fourth or fifth, I think fourth time in NBA history that two guys scored 60 plus in the same night. It happened to be on the 18th anniversary of Kobe's 81 point game. And Bede goes for 70. He's averaging more points per minute than any player in history ever has in a season. And yet I say all that and I'm going to say, I don't even know how much I, I really have in terms of energy to talk about that. Like they deserve all the credit in the world, especially in beads more. So um, I'm not taking anything away from that or the season he's having potentially a second straight MVP year, his best season, one of the greatest seasons we've ever seen period. But like Wolf on Doc Rivers is coaching the Milwaukee bucks. Now. <laughs> like yeah. all due respect oh, yeah. to, to no, we're, we're going to get to, we're going to get to that greatness. That is Joel and Bede. And that epic night of scoring from him in towns, And we're going to get to the Rozier trade later, too, which I'm actually a big fan of. But, like, dude, if someone had told you when we were signing off last week, hey, when you guys reconvene six days from now or not even five days, whatever it would be, uh, Doc Rivers is going to be coaching the Milwaukee Bucks.
0: Well, Cash, you promised me that we could talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Utah Jazz. (laughs) And damn it, I will have that conversation. I don't know if we're going to be able to get to it on this episode. We're going to try. Yeah. But if things are running long, we might have to scrap that and just push it back. But I intend to have that conversation because I think these two teams that are obviously bound now and well into the future by this consequential trade that they made two off seasons ago are two of the most interesting teams in the league right now to me. So I hope we can get into having that conversation. I I agree. Like it sucks to have to just skate past a 70 point game. I just wanted to say that I remember six weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago when we were doing our ranking of the top 10 players in the NBA at that point in the season. And actually I think both of us wound up having Embiid second at that point. He has like, since then created like a massive gulf between himself and the rest of the league. I think he'd be a clear number one, like with a bullet yeah. right now. But what I said at the time was, I thought that he was the best big man scorer since Wilt. And you gave me a little bit of side eye when I said that, Cash. It's not, And now it's I, not... can't go, I can't go a day without hearing somebody mention the fact that he is the only player, I mean, obviously the season is not over yet, but to be averaging more than a point per minute since one, Will Chamberlain. Yeah, what listen, do you have to say for yourself?
1: I will give Joelle and his flowers. I will give Joe, not L Wolfond his flowers. <laughs> um, but I, as I said, because I time, take no L's, Cash. <laughs> nice. um you take some. I don't think I gave you side eye per se, and I don't even think I I said it was like that outrageous of a thing to say. I think what my contention was was you made it seem like it was like a no brainer and what i was saying is okay let's not completely ignore like shaq and listen since then i think yeah it, it you could say I'd be doing the best big man scorer since wilt i just more took exception to the fact that you made it seem very clear cut and i i thought shaq at least deserved to be in that discussion
0: oh there's no doubt that he deserves to be in that discussion i don't i don't throw out that comparison or that superlative lightly um, and it and it's really difficult to make cross era comparisons. Obviously, in all of this stuff, um, just like the game was played in a completely different fashion when Shaq was in his prime. So, if someone wants to say it's Shaq, I'm I'm not gonna d- dispute that. I just think Embiid has obviously put himself very squarely in that conversation. And uh, yeah, that was that was just a crazy night. Like the, do you want to talk about the cat game at all? Yeah, or but just quickly before we do, I was just gonna
1: mention when we also had that conversation. I think it was that same episode when I talked about how, you know, even though we weren't getting into the nitty gritty of an MVP race, cause it's way too early in the season. And it honestly, it still is, but like how at the time I still would have gone Jokic, you know, for the third time in four years for myself, the fourth time in four years. But, you know, I, I said he was going to win it for the third time in four years over Embiid, even as well as Embiid was playing at the time we both had him second, right. In our player power rankings at that point. And then maybe a couple weeks later, Based on that tear Embiid started going on, I then came on the show and said, okay, if the season ended right now, this would be the first time I would vote for Embiid over Jokic in these four years. And I would say in the time since then, because Embiid missed some time with injury, Shea Gilgis-Alexander went absolutely nuts. The Thunder got up to first in the West. There was a point in time where, again... These are all very arbitrary endpoints, but it was like, okay, if the season ended today, now I would probably go shave for MVP, maybe by a hair over both the bigs. And now it's swung back to Embiid. So uh, honestly, fun race, whether, whether you're into talking awards this early in the season or not, at the very least, I think you'd have to admit it's going to be a hell of a race. And it's also cool that as great as Embiid and in Jokic have been again, that there is a player who's actually been so good. He's at least nudge himself potentially into that conversation.
0: Yeah. It's going to be a hell of a race between Joel Embiid and 16 games missed <laughs> or sorry, what is it? You would have or, to miss 18. You would have to miss 18. As long as he between Joel and Embiid and 18 games missed. Uh that, that one's going right down to the wire. He's missed 11 already mm-hmm. cash. And mm-hmm. that is the unfortunate part of this. And we, we both were extremely opposed to this rule when it came out our rationale being that hey look if a guy misses 20 games and you as a voter still deem him to be the most valuable player because he was just that good in the 62 games that he played then you should still be able to vote for him and if a different voter wants to say yeah he was awesome in those 62 games but i can't ignore the 20 missed games and doesn't want to vote for him for that reason power to that voter as well you know like why I mean I understand why they did it I just think it was so wrong-headed yeah and I think there's a very real possibility that we're gonna see the consequences of that in the first season that it's been enacted and I think it's the kind of thing where it could be so absurd like if Embiid winds up at like 63 games played and if he's at, I'm gonna read out his numbers right now. They're just completely insane. Okay. Thirty-six point one points, eleven point six rebounds, five point nine assists, one point two steals, one point nine blocks, sixty five percent true shooting, and the Sixers are twenty six and six in the games that he's played. We we could be looking at that type of a season and it not resulting in an MVP for no other reason than he missed, you know, nineteen games.
1: Yeah. That'd be a I, I think
0: and I think that's the kind of thing that, like, if it does happen, they might just reverse that rule like right away yeah. and just recognize that it was a mistake. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that's just a shame that that's kind of hovering over this. But I guess it also does add some intrigue. And, yeah, Shea's been incredible. Jokic is still ridiculous. Um, but I, I think right now it is Embiid's award to lose. And kind of the only way I can see him losing it is if he misses what I guess would be seven more games from here on out.
1: You you did ask me about Cat before before yeah, I kind of yeah let's let's get into quickly here. Um, yes. So you asked me my my thoughts on it, and I would say, in the interest of entertainment, it would be very easy for me to say. You know, Wolfon, what what was it that uh, famous line uh, Tim McMahon once said on a podcast about Carl Anthony Towns? He Cat's he, just a I think loser. He said he's a loser, <laughs> just a loser. Like he's just. And then I was going to say, in the spirit of entertainment and what I think our great loyal listeners expect of me, I, I really wanted to say that. But the truth is, and this is, it's, I'm not saying this for the first time 40 games into the season. I've said it in a video a couple of weeks ago. I've said it a couple times in the pod. I've written about it. Look, I think based on kind of what the Wolves have become in becoming a top team in the West and a team that, as we've mentioned in a podcast, again, I made a video about, like, I think are actually built to win this year like i think they are capable i'm not i'm not picking them to win the title but based on the way they are built and the way things kind of line up they are capable of winning a title this year they're that good i think they're structured that well with like on both sides of the ball with ant being a kind of championship shot creator gobert being the defensive player of the year again if he stays healthy and part a big part of that as i've been saying is i think cat is perfectly suited for the role he's now in as this like ultra efficient secondary option who can obviously space the floor as a big man but also when needed can punish mismatches as much as we you know sometimes tease about the fact that he doesn't do it enough but like i think he does that well enough that he can be the perfect second guy on offense on a championship team and do it really well and he's doing it really well this season and so again while in the interest of entertainment i would love to say like tim mcmahon he's just a loser the fact of the matter is i actually think it's a shame that a lot of the talk after such a great night is going to be kind of like same old Carl Anthony Towns look he has this great score, and he still gets benched because of this this and this because I understand the reasons Chris Fincher's was upset don't get me wrong not just with Carl Anthony Towns but with the Timberwolves as a whole that night but I hope that in the uh in the rush to kind of laugh at Cat, which you know I'll admit is easy to do I I actually do hope that it doesn't distract from the season he's having for a great Wolves team because like I said he's he is I think playing the role that is actually perfect for him and playing it insanely well this year I,
0: I agree he's been terrific I think he's really found his niche in that offense um, he's having one of his best seasons as a post-up player maybe actually the best season statistically of his career as a post-up player I still don't love them running so much stuff through him in the post like i i think he's better serving as like a guy who can space and attack closeouts and drive the ball like you know run some delay action from the top of the floor i i just like think that his decision making out of the post can go a little bit haywire but he's been really good at it i think he's done all that stuff exceptionally well and he has adapted i think to fit pretty much exactly what the wolves need i also think he's one of the most improved defenders in the nba this season i agree with everything you said i just like i said off the top only carl towns only carl towns could find a way to get dunked on to get clowned on a night when he scores 62 points breaking his own franchise single game scoring record and it's like I'm watching this game. I I tuned in partway through just to see what he was doing. Like I'd already, I'd missed the first half when he dropped 44 points, but I started watching in the third quarter and he was still hitting everything. And I think the Wolves were up like 18 late in the third. And then they started force feeding him. He was putting up some kind of wild shots. The Hornets started chipping away at the lead a little bit. And I tweeted something to the effect of the funniest outcome would be the Wolves finding a way to lose this game to the Hornets because Cat is gunning too hard for 71 points. I didn't expect that. And I think it was John John uh, Kricinski, the Wolves beat reporter who actually reported this, that the Wolves were aware of Embiid's 70-point game and were actually going out of their way to try and get Cat to 71 And then the Hornets actually did come back and win that game. And as you mentioned, Cat winds up getting benched, at least for like part of crunch time, for like two minutes down the stretch. Possibly for defensive reasons, possibly because he was just getting a little out ahead of his skis in uh, some of the shot selection as he was trying to hunt increasingly ridiculous scoring output. But he did wind up on the bench for part of crunch time in that game. He probably got fouled on what may have been, you know, a game winning drive with the Wolves down one.
1: Did the last two minute er- report. And, then he, and
0: the- then he airballed the sort of last second uh, heave at the buzzer.
1: Was that one of the 10 incorrect calls in that last two minute report? Was that not the game where there was 10 incorrect calls in
0: the last two minutes? Oh man, I didn't even, I, I, I haven't looked at a last two minute report in like five years. I'm not even kidding. I don't care. Yeah. Well,
1: there may there was a game this week and I think it was that one where the last two minute report deemed that there were 10 incorrect calls in the
0: final two minutes. Anyway, the point being, this could only happen to Cat, where he has this unbelievable game, historic game, you know, in, in Timberwolves history, and it just ends with him getting dunked on by everyone up to and including his coach, who comes out after the game and is, like, talking about what disgusting performance he thought it was. Saying that Cat was hunting points and taking bad shots and busting up the flow of the offense. This guy just scored sixty-two points for you, and it's like, dude, Anthony Edwards was terrible in that game. I know he was sick, but like, still, you know, he put on a uniform and he scored nine points on three of eleven shooting and sucked on defense. And he's skating like nobody's talking about Ant in that game. They're just talking about Cat. Poor bastard. Sounds um, like uh, Chris
1: Finch might agree with Tim McMahon. <laughs>
0: um anyway all right let's move on to the meat of this episode uh thoughts on i I know you wrote about this i haven't gotten around to reading your pci cache i do sincerely apologize for that but it's been a crazy couple of days scary terry in miami would you uh, like to summarize your thoughts for me and our audience yeah, I think uh,
1: it was a no-brainer for the Heat and a move that uh, I wouldn't have said this a few months ago, but that I absolutely love for Miami. I think that, especially because the Heat, more than any other team, were like all in on trying to acquire Damian Lillard, and there was obviously the expectation of like that kind of acquisition, I think it's easy to maybe find a few months later trading for Terry Rozier really underwhelming. But I think that ignores how great of a fit i think he could be and again the just like the low like the meager price that they paid to acquire him you combine
0: the things i think it's a no-brainer um it's not that meager though i mean it it could be an unprotected pick okay it could be
1: but again and this is something I, i mentioned in the piece i understand that and i i acknowledge that in the piece that of course there's risk associated with that but like On one hand, you can look at it like, well, even when it's lottery protected in 2027 and then yeah, unprotected in 2028, by that time, Bam, Butler, Hero, all their deals are off the books. It's a risk for sure. And it was some of the little draft capital Miami actually had left, but I truly believe that the Heat don't have to worry about the consequences of far away picks like that as much as the average NBA franchise has to and this isn't even anything to do with like the whole heat culture thing it's because they're in Miami and that like there's two markets above all in the league that for the most part I think can bank on over time attracting the type of star that will keep them competitive when they need to be. And that's Los Angeles and Miami. And so again, obviously there's no guarantees. They've been bad before. I'm not saying it's impossible that he can... Lakers
0: missed the playoffs, what, like like six years in a
1: row? I know. And again, the Heat have been bad before. Like, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that if there's two markets that should have more confidence than others, that they will be able to figure it out and not drop to the bottom because they'll probably have a star again at that point, it's Miami and L.A. And so I just don't think they need to worry about those consequences of five, six year out picks the same way other franchises do. I think that's just, you know, unfortunately a,
0: a fact of markets in pro sports. But sorry, I just want to jump in here with a question. I don't you may not know the answer to this, but my understanding is the Heat owe a pick to OKC in 2026 or 2025 yeah. that has some protections on it, maybe lottery protected. And so if that doesn't convey in 2025 and they have to send it in 2026, then they wouldn't actually be able to send that pick to Charlotte in 2027. And I think in that case, like the trigger would be that it then immediately becomes that unprotected in 2028.
1: So yeah, they have the 2025 first to OKC, which is lottery protected. Then it becomes unprotected in 2026. So yeah, if it carries over to 2026... But I- available if Miami conveys a first rounder to Oklahoma city in 2025. So yeah, if, if they end up conveying it in 2026, it would trigger that it's the 2028 pick instead. And when that's unprotected, and again, like I said, right. there's a risk associated with that. No doubt. I just think it's much less of a risk if you're Miami than if you're say Charlotte or something. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's part of it. There's a, a guy on Twitter goes by the name of Todd Whitehead. He works for synergy goes by at crumpled jumper on Twitter. He put out some charts and info that I thought were interesting. This was after I had already done the piece. And it essentially says that according to Synergy's info and analysis, Terry Rozier and DeJounte Murray, just based on this season, have the highest similarity score of any two players in the NBA in their system. And I say that just to illustrate again that one, I think this is a better acquisition than most people are giving kind of credit for. And two, just how good Rozier has been this year. Again, I, you know, DeJounte Murray's not setting the world on fire by any means. But again, I think if someone had told you a few months ago, the Heat are going to acquire DeJounte Murray, be like, okay, up. there's something here. It's Terry Rozier, but let me explain why I think he fits so well with this team. I think that it's easy for people who have not paid attention to Rozier, or maybe to assume that like career highs and scoring and assists have to do with the fact he's been forced to take on more of the offensive load in Charlotte, and it's a bad team, and he's probably not doing it in the most efficient way, but his improved efficiency has actually been the story to me. Like he's got a career high usage rate, more than 57% of his made field goals this year are self-created, unassisted. And despite that, he is shooting a career high inside the arc, 53% from two, 35.8% from deep, you know, average-ish, but it's on nearly eight three-point attempts per game. So more than okay. And 85% from the free throw line, he is you know solidly above average in terms of points per shot attempt effective field goal percentage for a combo guard especially one with those kind of responsibilities and then it's just like you kind of keep going through it like his ability to beat his man off the dribble get to the teeth of a defense should help a 20th ranked heat offense that's third worst in getting to the rim um we've talked about it before but like that's the kind of north south boost they need it could even help them create more looks from deep we've talked about the fact that like they're eighth in accuracy but i think 16th in frequency. Maybe another guard who can penetrate and create open looks elsewhere on the floor helps boost those numbers a little bit. Um, And then even like the playmaking, like I, you know, Rozier is not a natural playmaker by any stretch of the imagination. And there's maybe people out there still saying, "Ah, I think the Heat need like a, a pure point guard, a kind of floor general. You have illustrated in the past about how the Heat probably more than any other team in Eric boler system kind of demand and get playmaking from everywhere on the floor there's that and there's also the fact that like you know he's still averaging 6.6 assists per game like we're not talking about a playmaking slouch here again not a pure point guard not a the most natural playmaker I don't think he's gonna make the most ridiculous finds and he, he doesn't have the greatest court vision for a guy who has the ball in his hands but it's good enough I think in this heat system I think he can develop a nice two-man game with bam. Something I didn't even notice till I started kind of digging into the numbers to, to write this piece, I had, I guess, noticed eye test-wise, Rozier seemed to be doing well as the pick and roll ball handler this season, but I didn't realize how well he was orchestrating pick and roll. So among 83 players who've run at least 100 possessions as the pick and roll ball handler this season... He's been the fourth most efficient in the league at 1.11 points per possession. So again, you just add it all up. I think he is really going to help juice this offense and an offense that really needs to be juiced. We know what they can do defensively. We know about the culture. We know about Spo. but I think they needed something else on offense. And I think Terry Rozier gives it to them. He's not, again, he's not Damian Lillard or anything kind of in that stratosphere, but for what he does bring, for what the Heat need, for what they paid to acquire him. I think it's a no-brainer, like I said. And, uh, you you know, maybe don't look at his uh, Heat debut box score to see if any of this holds up, because I last I checked, he was 3 of 11 and not playing that well. But they closed Wednesday night's game, which was a a loss to Memphis, those pesky uh, Grizzlies. The Heat closed that game with uh, Butler, Bam, Hero, Martin, and Rozier and I think that's how we'll see them close most games so yeah that those are all my thoughts on the Rozier trade and why I like it a lot for the I mean I don't know how interested you are in talking about like the Lowry angle and where maybe he ends up or I I thought there'll be time there'll be time for that I I will say from the Hornets perspective I get what they're doing and under new ownership there's been a lot of reporting about how like they do have an appetite to kind of like tear this thing down again rebuild it around LaMelo and Brandon Miller and I get all that, but. I was left wanting a little more from this trade, from Charlotte's perspective, just in the sense that like, I think Rozier was their best veteran trade chip. And I guess you can look at the whole unprotected in 2028 thing and, and say that eh, this is pretty good for a player of Rozier's caliber. But I don't know. I think with how well he was playing and also the contract he's now on, which actually seems pretty team friendly in the modern cap environment it's going to be less than 18 percent of the cap in the next two seasons if nothing else i think for miami it's a movable mid-sized deal that gives them an extra trade chip in the future for a team that doesn't have a lot of draft capital and so i i really love it for miami i get it from charlotte's perspective but ah there's a part of me that thought they could maybe get two
0: firsts or you know a they weren't fir- getting two firsts, man come on
1: a first okay a first and a second i don't know like just a little, just a, a little bit more draft capital, given how well Rozier was playing, and especially, like I said, because it is Miami and an unprotected twenty twenty eight Miami first to me means less than it would from almost any other team.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't really have much to say about it from the Charlotte side. I think they did fine, and I think when you are in the position that that team is in, and you have a chance to acquire an unprotected first. Like, Terry Rogier's good. He's having a good season, but I, I'm, I'm totally fine with it from their end. <clears throat>
1: um,
0: I wanted to ask you, though. So did you watch that Miami-Memphis game? Because I was, like, locked in on cavs bucks tonight, so I didn't get to see it. I, yeah, same. I, I saw some parts here and there. I watched, like, the last few minutes of it more. Okay, so you, you mentally, mentioned that closing lineup. Um, yep. Rogier and Hero both on the floor together. Yes. Like, d- uh, they're... You know, playing Memphis, the literally the worst offensive team yep. in the NBA. So maybe it's not the best test case. But how do they look defensively in those closing minutes?
1: Yeah, I don't think great. And in fact, <laughs> no. And in fact, just seeing them out there before, I'd even seen what they were doing out there when I just observed that that was their closing lineup and that it probably will be going forward. One of the notes I had here was box-like situation question mark, and it's because I wanted to ask you. Do you have concerns, obviously on a different level, different players in terms of who's in the lineup, but like, is there a concern for you that it's almost similar to the situation that was created in Milwaukee, funnily enough, who is the team that landed Dame Lillard, where, you know, they made the mistake of starting Dame and Beasley, but what the Bucs are learning is that like, no matter how great of a defensive front court you have, even when you have Giannis and friggin' Brooke Lopez back there, it can't make up for that porous a starting backcourt or a backcourt in general. And I do wonder if the heat are going to kind of learn the same thing with like listen, bam, Butler Martin is a really tremendous defensive frontcourt ability-wise, but if you're asking them to make up for Terry Rozier and Tyler Hero, you know, at the point of the attack and on the perimeter I think that might be asking too much of them.
0: Yeah. I think it can maybe work in the regular season, but Mm -hmm. in the playoffs, I I don't know that you can really close games that way. I think one of those guys will probably wind up coming off the bench anyway, but it's more, I guess about closing lineups and whether that can be viable. And I just, I, I have a ton of respect for Eric Spolstra as a tactician and he is better than any coach in the league at masking weak defenders, without a doubt. That's that's a tall task. And I, I know that, like, you know, Rogier in Boston was pretty decent defensively. Like, he's small. I think he's, what, 6'1"? Yeah. But he's got, like, a 6'8 plucky, wingspan. Though. And he has shown that in the right environment with the right motivation, he can be pretty sticky at the point of attack. But it, just his... Lack of size coupled with hero's lack of length and athleticism. I don't know. That's just, that's a lot to make up for. Yep. Like they've done it, you know, with like hero and Duncan Robinson on the floor together, but Robinson at least has size and, you know, knows where to be and can defend pretty well in like a team context. This is, I don't know. That feels a little bit different to me, but obviously they needed offense. You mentioned, I think they're 20th uh, overall. They might be worse after tonight dropping 96 against Memphis. I don't know how many possessions there were in that game, but you just don't see a lot of teams coming in under a hundred in 2024. So a couple things you mentioned, you mentioned the pick and roll numbers. what do you say he was fourth out of
1: fourth out of 83 players who have run at least hundred possessions as the pick and roll ball handler.
0: Yeah. So I'm guessing that has something to do with the fact that he's hitting 39% of his pull-up threes while, while taking almost five a game. And, you know, maybe he's made this great leap as a pull-up three-point shooter. That's by far the best mark of his career. Uh, his previous career high was 36%, and that was on two attempts per game way back in 2017-18. Other seasons, it was like between 30% and 34%. So if that and by the way, he has like some of the weirdest three-point shooting splits that I've seen. Because he's at 39% on pull-up threes and 29% on catch and shoots this year. But if that pull-up shooting can sustain itself, I mean, man, do the Heat need that particular yes. skill so badly. Like somebody who can get defenses out of their drop, who can get two on the ball and put a defense in rotation. Like, the, I think they've just. They move the ball really well. They, they pass and cut and like do all this stuff away from the basketball that can confuse a defense. But I think they just really struggle to create those initial advantages. And, I, you know, look, I think Rozier is going to have to prove that that pull-up shooting is real before defenses start to react to him in that way. But that would be momentous for them if he can do that. Um, you know, you also mentioned the rim pressure thing. They are 28th in rim frequency and they've been bottom four, by the way, for three years running now. So, you know, didn't prevent them from making it to the finals last year or making it to the brink of the finals the year before that. But like you mentioned, they will probably benefit from having that North South element because hero, as we've mentioned in the past is just like allergic to the rim, never gets there. Lowry certainly wasn't getting there at all. And even bam, does most of his work kind of in like the short mid-range area. It's kind of just Jimmy, I feel like, who's been providing that that rim pressure for them. And Rogier actually gets to the rim a lot. So, you know, the the potential to maybe break a defense down at the point of a screen with his pull-up ability and then also potentially collapse a defense from the inside with his driving ability, that dual threat, I think, can maybe help Miami... Create the initial advantages that it needs to then, you know, widen them and crack defenses open with their ability to move the ball. Because like we talked about, when did we talk about the, like two episodes ago, we were talking about their offense and how, you know, they don't really have one elite passer, but they've got like six or seven good ones. They've got a lot of secondary playmaking. And if you've got somebody who can create those initial advantages and just sort of get the ball pinging around, like that can have a cascading effect maybe that will, you know, even if you're thinking, well, just sticking a guy like Terry Rogier onto the 20th best offense in the league isn't going to move the needle all that much. Maybe it goes a little bit further on a team that is like uniquely equipped yes. to like extend advantages. So I'm interested to see that. I think I'm like a little bit more lukewarm on the trade than some people seem to be, like I do think it it's rational, and for one thing, you just like keep the salary slot that you were gonna lose if if Lowry's contract just came off the books and you get a good player who, as you mentioned, is probably gonna be tradable on this deal down the road and and like yeah i'm I'm like you know I'm curious to see the defense and then I'm also curious to see this egalitarian offense that we've talked about. You know, how do they sort of slot him into that? Uh, I I think it's interesting. I I think he'll be a pretty good fit there. Maybe not an ideal one. And I think they're actually, you know, as much as Lowry was just becoming too much of a liability on offense and just didn't have much juice left as a scorer, I I really do think they're going to miss a lot of what he did. Yeah, I think that's being undersold a bit here. Like, just his savvy... And his ability to make good decisions on both ends of the floor, much better defender than Rogier, even, you know, as he approaches his 38th birthday. I don't know that it's going to be as much of an upgrade as it looks like it is on paper, but it does address a specific set of needs. And in that respect, you know, maybe you could argue that he had to do this. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll be, I'll be watching it with interest, but I, I'm not entirely sold on it in the way that some people seem to be. Yeah, Because I'm seeing some people say like, oh, wow, like the Heat are now a serious threat to like topple one of these juggernauts in the conference, which I guess you could argue that they were anyway, because we've seen them do it so many times in the past. But I don't know that this is the move that makes me say like, oh, shit, now it's time to watch out for the Heat.
1: Yeah, I don't. it doesn't make me say, oh, shit. But like I've been saying, I, I do love the move for them. I think it could be an ideal fit. And I think, look, the, the defending Eastern Conference champions and a team that has Managed to hang in the East's top six despite Butler, Bam, and Hero all missing between ten to nineteen games this year, in my opinion, mm. is a lot more dynamic today than they were yesterday and is still well positioned if they need to make a move later to make one. Maybe not this year, but in general later. The questions, like I said, I think are on the defensive end and for people that I think, you know, rightly can ask whether this team needs a table setter. And, and Lowry, if if he was anything on offense still, it was that. I think he was a good table setter, like you mentioned. He just had that savvy and made good decisions. But I think, like, if they weren't going to be shopping in the all-star aisle, and one, I don't you know, there might not be an all-star on the table on the market this season, and also the Heat probably didn't have the assets to get that player if he was on the market. If they weren't going to be shopping in the all-star aisle, and they were looking for a guy to fill needs that they had. I think Rozier was the best option available to them and to do it using Lowry's expiring contract and a pick that, again, while it does have its risks, I don't think the Heat have to be that worried about. I think it was a good piece of business.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it was a good piece of business and I would sort of stop there. <laughs> I think there's just been a lot of hyperbole that I've seen. Maybe I'm building, you know, another straw man as I am wont to do, but like I've seen people be playing, oh, like, of course the Heat got Rogier. He's going to be such a perfect Miami Heat player. The only like,
1: people I've seen be that... I guess terrified of it or into it are Celtics fans. Funny <laughs> enough, like again, I said I love the deal. I I wrote about how I love it. I think it's gonna be good for the Heat. I'm not saying I'm now pick them to beat one of those top two or three teams in the East, but the the people that I've seen the most all in on it are
0: the most like oh, like you said, of course they got up are Celtics people and fans. Yeah, it's just a. They- A perfect storm of like overvaluing their own players and also having a healthy fear of the team that's knocked them out of the playoffs in two of the last four years i guess that makes sense anyway let's take the break there then we'll come back we'll talk about adrian griffin doc rivers and the milwaukee bucks
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show
0: okay, cash my my hopes of talking about the Utah Jazz and Cleveland Cavaliers are quickly flying out the window here. We're approaching the forty minute mark, and so far, no mention of Colin Sexton, much to my chagrin. So let's table that conversation and let's finish out here by talking about the topic de jour, the bucks making the Somewhat surprising and somewhat predictable slash inevitable decision to relieve Adrian Griffin of his duties just 43 games into his head coaching tenure. They were 30 and 13 at the time they made the move. And I think that this was about as unsurprising as a coaching firing could be with a team with a record that good. The comparison that is like, the easiest by far to make is the Cavs firing David Blatt in 2016 when they were 30 and 11 at that stage, Blatt had at least had a full season to prove that he appearance. was and a finals appearance, you know, to prove that he was, or I guess in his case that he wasn't the right fit for a LeBron James led championship aspirant. But, uh, I just think that in spite of the impressive record the fact that they were second in the east had the second best offense in the nba i don't think this is like crazy all that surprising and i for the most part feel that it was justified uh just given where the bucks are at like in different circumstances of course you would say no he deserved more time to figure this out but with where the bucks are at uh, they are obviously under the gun in a way that few teams, if any, in the NBA are. And I feel like if they didn't believe in Adrian Griffin, which they clearly didn't, then it made sense to pull the plug now and see if they could try to, I don't want to say salvage the season, because again, they were 30 and 13. On pace for Second in wins. the East. 57 win pace. The exact same winning percentage as they averaged throughout the Mike Budenholzer era. Which is, even that is crazy to say. Like, they averaged 57 wins. I mean, prorated because some of those seasons were abbreviated. But like, 57 win pace over five seasons under Bud. Give that guy his flowers. Anyway, they were, they're on that same pace. So it's, it feels weird to be like, oh, they got to see if they can salvage this season. But I think all of us watching, and we've had conversations about this on the pod throughout this season, could tell that it wasn't quite right that they weren't quite as good as their record indicated. They have played a soft schedule. Their defense has been terrible. The vibes are a little bit off. And there were all of these public shows of distrust, disrespect, communication failures, like all, all of these indications that things just weren't working out with Adrian Griffin. And it obviously came to a point where they felt like they had to do something about it. So here comes Doc, who has apparently been, you know, consulting for the Bucks or, you know, consulting for Adrian Griffin, I guess, since around the time that they lost to the Pacers in the in-season tournament semis. And, you know, I'm, I don't know, but before I go any further, I'll I'll just kick it over to you for some thoughts because I could could just go off on a few different tangents here. So I'm going to cut myself off and ask you what you think of all of this cash
1: okay well first i think you hit the nail on the head in in, i mean talking about it but also in reading your piece about it and and it's something i've said often that no matter where teams are in their competitive cycle if they don't think they're getting what the team needs at that point in time out of their coach and they don't have confidence that that coach will find what they need just rip the band-aid off and move on and you know on the other end of the spectrum i think there are times when the wins and losses might not indicate it but a coach maybe is doing the things that a team needs from him at that point in time in their competitive cycle and they should stick with them because if they believe in them. So I'm fine with like, I, I don't care that they were on pace for 57 wins. If the Bucks didn't believe Adrian Griffin had it and wasn't going to find it with this team and I think justifiably so based on things that we've seen and things that have been reported, then I'm in full support of them making the decision look results obviously are all that matter in the playoffs but for teams with goals as lofty as milwaukee's you could argue the process is more important in the regular season obviously to an extent you're still gonna win enough to get there but and i think anyone with a trained eye could tell you that the process and the vibe has seemed off with the bucks all season despite their record like you can go back to the whole thing with Terry Stotts. I think before, was it before the season even started or maybe a few games? Anyway, I think it was before the season. No, no it, was,
0: it was preseason. I think it was like before their last game of preseason right. or with, something like that. You know, uh, Terry Stotts,
1: resigning the fact that i think all of our eyebrows were raised when we first found out beasley was going to be starting because of the defensive concerns in the same backcourt as dame the really uninspiring start to the regular season and the defensive scheme change that took Giannis and especially brooke lopez away from their strengths and the rim that night in toronto where the game that the raptors just blew the doors off the box was the fourth game of the season they dropped two and two we were openly talking on media row about whether it was possible Adrian Griffin was going to be like a first year hot seat guy. We were saying that a week and a half into the season being challenged by Bobby Portis reportedly after I think that same in-season tournament loss to the Pacers that you mentioned the reporting was that's when Doc Rivers started consulting uh, the sideline argument with Giannis Giannis diagramming plays on the sidelines and a close win over the Pacers like there's enough here that regardless of their record for a team that is all in I think it's a justifiable decision. And even that in and of itself, the fact that they are all in, I get it. But I do think it's interesting, and it just goes to show you, one, how quickly things move in the NBA and in the world of pro sports, and maybe some of the internal pressures in Milwaukee that you wouldn't expect. Like, you can say what you will about the ages of the supporting cast members, right? Whether it's Middleton, Lopez, Dame, and, and that's why there's this pressure to win. Now I get that. But in general, like, them trading for Dame, with the term he has on his contract, and then them getting Giannis to extend, not that it meant this season didn't matter. Obviously, they're still all in on trying to win a championship. But, like, you would have figured it bought them some time in the sense of, like, yes, obviously they want to try to win again this year. That You don't want to waste prime years of a guy like Giannis. But, like, it should have bought them some time, I guess. And it feels like the way they've acted, and again, maybe justifiably so, It feels like maybe they don't think they actually have that time. And so I think that's interesting. And then, yeah, like, again, you can say everything you want about how justifiable it was for them to come to this conclusion and make this decision. And and kudos for them making the tough decision if that's what needed to be done. But I do think it's really hilarious that it ends with Doc Rivers being the replacement. Because... While I actually think, like, it's, it's possible this pendulum has actually swung all the way to the wrong side with Doc now in that he might be I agree. underrated. Like, I he's agree. not a bum. He's still a good NBA <laughs> coach. Like, he's had his playoff disappointments and failures since winning that 2008 title. He's had some questionable decisions. He's over-reliant on veterans sometimes. I, I get all that. But, like, he's not as bad as the people clowning him think he is, I actually thought, and we talked about this, I think, while it was happening last year. Like, I thought he had a really good playoffs last year, and I don't really put what happened in the Sixers' latest postseason meltdown on him, um, at least not that much of it. So that's one. But I will still acknowledge that it is really funny that this has ended with Doc Rivers taking over. Um, You know, friend of the show and one of the funniest guys on Twitter, Trill, Uh, he had a tweet yesterday where he kind of listed all the stars that Doc Rivers has coached either in or near their prime. And I'm going to remove like the Celtics big three, and I'm going to remove young T-Mac in Orlando from that. And I'm just going to say, if you look at just the guys he's coached in their primes or near their primes since winning that title in Boston, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin together, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George together, Joel Embiid and James Harden together. Now it's going to be Giannis and Dame together. We'll see what he does there. But like it's one thing to say he's coached all those guys and hasn't won anything with them. Forget winning. He hasn't been to the conference finals with that star talent since winning the title. So while I do acknowledge that the pendulum has swung too far the other way and Doc Rivers might be underrated at this point, I will also say it is pretty hilarious from an optic standpoint <laughs> that a team who is so all in on winning a title and the big picture that a 57 win pace is irrelevant to them is also the team that's rushing to hire a guy whose reputation over the last decade and a half is that of a coach who can win with talent in the regular season and then can't get over the hump in the playoffs.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that my counter to that would just be, okay, so you're looking for another guy to take over on kind of an emergency basis and steer this team, you know, through the last 38 games of the regular season and then into the playoffs. Unless you had a ready-made internal candidate that you felt comfortable promoting in the way that the Cavs did with Tyron Lue all those years ago, who are you going to go and get? And I think, you know, whatever you want to say about how strange or funny it is that they brought in Doc to consult and I guess I've just been grooming him to take over as coach that entire time. Not grooming, like he's a seasoned coach, but you know what I mean. Paving the way for him to take over as head coach that entire time. It's obviously a strange situation and certainly feels, I, I don't know, like I, has Adrian Griffin basically been coaching like with his head in the guillotine ever since then? Has he felt comfortable? Has he been looking over his shoulder the entire time as he seen the writing on the wall? Has that impacted his performance? I don't know. My point is, in that situation, bringing in the guy who has probably been paying closer attention to what's been going on with your team than anybody outside the organization makes a a decent amount of sense. Now, I don't know, should they have brought in somebody else to start consulting if they were insisting on doing that in the first place and paved the way for that person to take over eventually? Like, you know what's mike D'Antoni up to these days i have no idea but i think it's fine i think it's a fine replacement hire right now they're paying what are they they're they're paying three coaches right now right yeah. mike Boudin, they're paying Walter, Bug Adrian still griffin. they're 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 paying griffin and now they're paying doc yeah and they'll be paying griffin for another two and a half years he had a 3 year deal and that's where i'd start to get a bit squeamish cuz do you want to be in a situation where you have to fire another coach and maybe be paying four coaches at the same time? Hey, that's like, what
1: Joe Prunty's there for, man. You can
0: always take over in a pitch. Hey, man, the Bucs are 1-0 and in the Prunty era. Smoked the Cavs tonight. Anyway, I think that, look, obviously what what needs to be focused on right now is the defense, right? And you mentioned the, the schematic stuff at the start of the season that never made a whole lot of sense. They reverted to like a drop oriented base scheme pretty quickly and you know at the time i was like maybe griffin should have come to this realization on his own but at the very least i think you know we can give him credit for not being too proud to take his players advice and do what they insisted was going to be best for the team the defense improved after that and then it regressed again and i think in just watching them it's like that's where I get into, I, I just don't know how much of this is really fixable. Like, it, it very much is a personnel issue to me. Now, I, I do think they can be better, and we can get into talking about some of the ways that they can do that. But, like, you're, you're starting Damian Lillard and Malik Beasley. And as much as I think maybe they should try somebody else in the starting lineup other than Beasley, they don't have a lot of great options. They really don't. Like, you know, Jay Crowder is not like a lockdown defender at this stage of his career. And I don't know that Beauchamp or Andre Jackson Jr. is like ready for that kind of responsibility. Connaughton has not looked particularly good this season, really, at either end of the floor. I, I don't know. Like how many better options do they have than Malik Beasley? Especially if you consider how much better he is offensively than any other option they could plug into that spot right now. So unless or until they address that hole on the trade market, you know, like beef up their point of attack defense some way, somehow... I just think that's more than anything a personnel issue that's going to make it hard for their defense to meaningfully improve. I watch their games, and it's like a lot of this stuff. And this is what Giannis, like, he's repeatedly talked about this in like, you know, post game media scrums and things like that. Just being like, what are we doing? What's the plan? What's the scheme? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to take away? And that's where I'm just like, I, I don't know either. Because, yeah, they've scaled back the pressure, but. They will still, like, do, you know, probably more switching than they were doing before, applying more ball pressure than they were before, but, like, still dead last enforcing opponent turnovers. So it's not like that's having its desired effect. What it is doing is, uh, you know, their defensive rebound rate is far worse than it ever was under Mike Budenholzer. Like, part of that also is they're just porous at the point of attack. They're giving up dribble penetration more layup attempts, more times that Brooke Lopez has to jump out to contest or they're in rotation. So they're giving up more offensive rebounds. Also, like, it's just... <sighs> they just have so many miscommunications. Like, stuff that for... This is a veteran team, man. And there are so many times where they just, like, straight up, they botch switches, like, they get their wires crossed or their coverage is wrong. Two guys are going with the ball or two guys are going with the screener. Somebody's open. That happens so often. And that's stuff where I'm just like, you, you should be able to clean that up, you know? And that's where I, I think, I, I don't know, you You would hope that Doc Rivers can just come in and like install a bit more structure and give them a bit more of an identity. Because if there is one thing that you could say for Coach Bud, as much as he was maligned sometimes for being maybe a little bit too rigid, a little bit too dogmatic in, in his principles, what you could never say was that, there was not clarity of purpose that that defense didn't have an identity that you didn't know exactly what it was trying to accomplish.
1: And that the players didn't have it drilled down under his guidance.
0: Yes. So I think, you know, look, we've gotten to a point where this defense now is doing a lot of what it was doing in terms of like, they don't allow a ton of shots at the rim. Brooke is in a deep drop most of the time. Uh, But there's still a ton of, other kind of miscommunications and things that I don't know whether it's getting lost in the translation from coaches to players or players to players. They just don't all seem to be on the same page. Um, So I do think that like better coaching, better preparation, better structure, whatever can help in that regard. I'm curious what you think about. So like a lot's been made of the transition defense and this is where I'm like, you know, in terms of actually like, limiting transition efficiency. They haven't been that bad. It's just the frequency where like they're allowing the highest opponent transition frequency in the league. But they were 28th in that category last year too. And I wonder if that isn't just a function of them being like a little bit older, a little bit slow. They crash a lot for offensive rebounds. You know, again, something maybe like a schematic tweak can help but they might just not be built to like keep teams out of transition anymore.
1: A team that an older team that jacks a lot of threes and crashes the offensive glass is going to give up transition opportunities. Like I, you can maybe quibble with how they defend in transition and maybe the laziness or like the disorganized way they've gotten back. Like, but the frequency I think is kind of a product of the roster and the way they need to play on the offensive end, frankly.
0: So yeah, I don't know. I guess i I'm of two minds because I think Griffin was doing a bad job, and I think they were justified in trying to find a replacement and you know, not just play out the string on a, a very precious title contending season with a coach they clearly didn't believe in. And I also think some of these issues might just be personnel driven and might not be entirely fixable. So uh, that's. That's kind of where I land.
1: Yeah, it could just be putting lipstick on a pig. On the offensive side, because everyone talks about the defense, and obviously it's been wretched, and the decision at the beginning of the season made little sense, and we know all that. But at some point, they kind of are what they are defensively. They can maybe get a little better, but I don't think they're going to set the world on fire on the defensive end. The offensive end is where I think, despite the fact they're a top five offense, that there's actually room for growth and improvement. Do you agree with that? Or do you think this offense is basically getting what it should out of?
0: Uh, No, I I think there's room for improvement. I think like, you know, a lot of what they've been running is fairly vanilla. It's been incredibly effective because Giannis is insane. He's unbelievable. It's ridiculous. Uh, And Dame, you know, is not having his best season, but he's still really good. And he still just has, I don't know, he's been grifting a little bit too much for my taste especially like the three-point grifting. It just, I I don't know, it grinds my gears a little bit, but like he's been getting to the free throw line a ton. His drives have been super effective. I've always said he's such an underrated downhill guard. And so even though he hasn't like been shooting the ball, especially well, uh, you know, like the the ability to get to the, to the rim and to the line. And obviously like what he's done in crunch time this season has saved them. I don't know how many times, but I think there is room for maybe a little bit more like creativity in the way that they use their personnel. Now, is Doc Rivers the guy to unlock that? I I don't know. Um, But I think, you know, it's easy to just look at their numbers and say, well, they're second-best offense in the NBA, second-best offense of all time because this is 2024. So if you're second in the NBA this year, you're second in history. Uh, And obviously the offense isn't the issue, and they'll be fine. But like, I think we know it doesn't really work that way, right? Yep. How many times did the Bucks have a top five offense under Bud and completely fall apart at that end in the playoffs for know, some of the reasons that we're discussing, right? Just like, like offenses, not really, that I would
1: say, are less vanilla than Griffin's offense.
0: Eh, similar, like just very hammer and nail, right? Yep. It's like here is the blunt instrument, and we are going to use that to hammer this nail over and over and over again, and then suddenly it's it's the playoffs and like these very sophisticated, very well-prepared defenses, know that that hammer is coming. And I can't think of a metaphor off the top of my head for what you do when you know a hammer is coming, but it doesn't work as well. Is the point that I'm getting at. Pull the nail out, they end up hitting themselves in the thumb with it. Yes. There you go. Thank you. So how many times did Bud get left with a throbbing thumb? You know, or Giannis, or just the Bucks in general. Like, if you had to point to one... Like, the biggest reason that Bud got fired, that was it, right? It was the the almost annual collapse of that team's half-court offense. So just because, like, they're second in the league right now and what they're doing is working in the regular season doesn't mean that they're not going to run into some similar issues. Having Dame makes it less likely that they will, like, completely collapse at that end of the floor. But I don't think you can just, like, roll the ball out there and be like you know, let's let our elite talent do what they do. I guess what the, the one thing I would say about that is I think the sort of hand wringing about the Dame Giannis two man game is like a, a little bit much. Like, I don't think it's that big of an issue mainly because I think I've come around to feeling, and I know, you know, I was, on this, like, early in the season, I wrote a whole long piece about it, just, like, exploring why it wasn't working as well as maybe I thought it had the potential to. I don't know how much more there is to sort of mine out of that two-man game than they're already doing. And I know, like, the numbers now, like, they were not great early in the season. In terms of, like, the efficiency, that's come way up. That, that two-man game was super effective. So you could say, well, just, just run it more, just run it more, just run it more. But um, I love, you know, you know, Caitlin Cooper has this line that she always throws out there, I think, in situations like this, which is pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered, which is basically just a way of being like, there's got to be balance. And if you're just like leaning on the same thing over and over again, well, it's obviously not going to have like that, that same effect. Like there are going to be diminishing returns, you know? And I think, look, we saw from the start of the season how teams were going to defend that action where they were going to, they're going to bring the aggressive tag over. Like they're going to put two on Dame, but the tag is going to be there early. And they're just going to turn Giannis into a playmaker in those situations. And there are times when like that tag comes late and Giannis just like rampages to the basket and dunks. And there are times when he makes like really good passes out of those four on threes that create open threes. I'm not saying they shouldn't lean into it, um, but I just think what they get out of like, Giannis running inverted action with Beasley or even with Connaughton or Dame running pick and roll with Brooke and Giannis making those blade cuts from the weak side. Like all that stuff is also very effective. So when I watch them, I don't usually come away thinking like, man, they need to go to Dame Giannis pick and roll more often. And they do do that a lot in crunch time anyway. So it just feels like, yeah, they could probably do it more especially like the inverted pick and roll stuff, they could probably do more. But that part of it is not like something that I'm overly concerned about right now. Okay, so where does this go, man? Like what are what do we think of the Bucks the rest of the way? Did you watch their game tonight? What do you think about? Did, did they look any different to you?
1: I mean, they looked good, but like they, they it's not like they haven't looked good at points this year. Or again, in the end, they, they were still on a 57 win pace. So yeah, it's hard for me to say they looked any different. And I think. You know, they blew the doors off Boston a couple of weeks ago. You could have looked at that night and been like, wow, they look good. They've turned the corner. They figured something out and then they hadn't really. So yeah, they looked great against a Cleveland team that again, we're not going to get to talk about tonight, but have in and of themselves and looked great. Ended their eight game win streak. Yeah. So yeah, great result for the Bucks. They looked good, but I don't think they figured anything out in that game. And you know, Prunty's first game as a returning interim coach, I think we'll have to see what they look like once they get settled in under doc i mean you look at their upcoming schedule they get cleveland again friday night at home i'd assume that's going to be doc's debut it's the first night of a back-to-back cleveland new orleans at home then they go west for a road trip that takes them through denver portland dallas utah phoenix come back home and play minnesota like it's a tough stretch of schedule so not the easiest point of the season in general to have a new coach come in and get acclimated with a team that's in win now mode but they're in it now. They've got no choice but to figure it out. Doc's got no choice but to figure it out. Uh, by the way, did you? I don't know if you saw the beginning of the was ESPN or ABC broadcast tonight with Mike Breen and Doris Burke talking about Doc. They opened the show. They were talking about you know their esteemed colleague, and then Mike Mike Breen says, "We want to thank him for as many weeks of service." I, I thought it was just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's good classic stuff. Green. I, I just I don't know what else there is to say other than you know we'll see. Uh, you know, a couple weeks into this thing with Doc and a couple months into it, and then when the playoffs roll around, and after that, even as well, because like I said, obviously, Giannis extending and them trading for Dame with term on his contract seems like it would have bought them some time, but they're not acting like a team that thinks they have that
0: time. I do think it's funny, though, like you talk about their aging supporting cast, right? Where Dame's 33, Middleton's 32, and Brooks about to turn 36. And If I'm saying one of those guys does not look like he is succumbing to age-related decline right now, it's Brook. Yeah. He's still so good. I know, man. Like, he just does not look like he has lost a single step at the defensive end of the floor. Like, he is the—even Giannis has had—you know, I I think he's been better lately. Tonight, he was incredible defensively, but— He's had a lot of moments this season where I'm like, what is Giannis doing defensively? He's like not making an impact really as a backline helper in the way that we're accustomed to. His rotations are all over the place. Like, and Brooke is just there, man. He is like the anchor. He is a rock. He is so solid. And he he has been like their one constant at the defensive end of the floor this season. So yeah, kudos to that guy. From an effort perspective, this is the worst season from Giannis in... I was going to say in years, maybe ever. Yeah, but it's if it was just effort, that would be one thing. Because I'd be like, hey, you know, maybe he's preserving himself for the offensive end of the floor. Or he's or pacing himself of Griffin. for the playoffs. Silent protest of Griffin. Yeah, all that. But it's like, I don't know. It's like mental miscues too. Like stuff that's just really uncharacteristic for him. Um, but again, I think obviously like we we know what he's capable of defensively. And I thought uh, he was incredible in that game against the Cavs tonight. I will say, though, you know, that was one of their better defensive performances in a while. And they led that game, I think, wire to wire. Like, they were never really in danger of losing that game. I still, like, I was making notes throughout. And I I had probably, like, seven, eight, nine notes of just, like, galling defensive breakdowns and miscommunications on the Bucs side. And, like... I don't know, like two or three on the Cavs side, you know? And, and it's like, maybe that's just fine. Like that's how it's going to happen, right? Like they have Giannis and Dame and that, so I, another defense can play perfectly and still lose. But I still thought it was interesting in a game that they dominated and led wire to wire. They were still the team that was making more defensive mistakes. Yeah. And uh, it just, again, Giannis was incredible. Brooke was incredible defensively, like erased Jared Allen from that game. Jared teams Allen have not, has been playing phenomenal. Yeah. Teams have not had a lot of success erasing Jared Allen of late. So those guys were great, but the perimeter issues were still very apparent and they still have a lot of stuff to iron out at that end of the floor, clearly, but props to Joe Prunty getting another win under that interim belt. And uh, we'll see if any of this looks any different when doc officially takes over. So let's take another break. We'll come back. and I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about the Cavs or the Jazz today, but we will have that conversation at some point.
1: Last thing on Griffin I just want to throw out there. You know what I would really love to know? I mean, we never – well, I shouldn't say never with the reporting. We might. But I would really love to know, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for the moment, whenever it was, where Giannis – who reportedly handpicked Adrian Griffin over guys like Griffin's old boss Nick Nurse and other guys? I would love to know when the moment was and what Giannis's like internal feelings were in the moment when he came to the conclusion, like I got this right, like I have no, I've, faith I've made it. a huge mistake. Yeah, <laughs> I made a huge mistake. I have no faith in this guy. This was like the first time in Giannis's career that he had that kind of input on a coaching hire and he's 0 for 1, I'm not even, that part is is almost irrelevant to me, it's more so, I'm fascinated to know, like, how early in the season, and what was the moment that it hit him, like, man, I made a mistake, maybe in his mind, I should have bought it out, I shouldn't even have been part of it, or I should have gone for this other guy, or just in general, like, yeah I made a huge mistake, this guy's in over his head, we can't win with this guy, I would love to know I, I'm fascinated to know when that moment was, and You know, I I would love to have been a fly on the wall for like what Giannis looked like in that moment.
0: Because I'm sure it hit him like a ton of bricks. I mean, is it possible that he just never recovered from the Stotts thing? In terms of how people saw him, you know, internally and... himself, like, who had a great relationship with Stotts? Yeah, maybe it was then, but you really don't have... Like, (laughs) any moment, right? It could be that moment, it could be four games into the season when there was basically a player mutiny imploring him to revert to their old defensive scheme could have been that point could have been the point where you know like I think you mentioned it they had that spat on the sidelines when Giannis got pulled from that game against Boston wasn't happy about it didn't go to the bench sat on the scorers table until Griffin put him back into the game could have been that could have been the in-season tournament when Bobby Portis apparently like went after him in the locker room there are so many inflection points i guess that we could point to and be like oh that was the moment and i guess my instinct is to say that it probably dawned on him fairly early yeah because you know the reporting about this has been really funny too right it's like i think mark stein and somebody else who i'm not remembering right now maybe jake fisher reported that it wasn't even so much about adrian griffin it was more just about not nick nurse like he really didn't want it to be nurse and i would imagine that it dawned on him fairly early on that that was a mistake yeah i think so Um, i think so okay all right we got to call it there man it's like after midnight here one of us is going to have to edit this. We haven't decided who yet. We've got to flip a coin. So uh, let's get out of here. I have a fan shout out for us this week. And it is another Spotify commenter who goes by the name of Jing. Jing uh, commented on our episode a couple weeks back to say, it would be great to have timestamps on your episodes if possible. But thank you both for your work. Always enjoy your insights. Uh, no further info about where Jing is listening to this show from or how long he or she has been listening. But uh, timestamps, Cash, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good bet. I, I I think we've actually done it before at various points in the app. Yeah. Like if people are uh, accessing the podcast through the Score app, we have included timestamps um, inconsistently. But yeah, I guess we uh, uh, we could look into doing that Across all platforms, guess that would yeah. Be beneficial I mean, okay. First listening. of all,
0: yeah. First of all, thank you, Jing. Thank you for listening. I'm glad you uh, appreciate our insights. I would love to promise that we're gonna do timestamps from here on out. I can promise that we'll try. We create the show entirely ourselves. Like we produce and edit it, and we also have like other stuff going on. Like we're usually in the middle of like writing stories, or in Cash's case, video scripts, uh, and the podcast can be an interruption to that. So sometimes we just don't have time to like go through and mark uh, where different parts of the conversation are happening. But I, I feel bad because I actually really appreciate when there are timestamps on other pods and I would like to do that on ours. So I think we can make a commitment to trying that. Uh, probably not on this episode because as I've mentioned a couple of times, it's extremely late. But on future episodes, we'll definitely try to have some timestamps just for you, Jing. Thanks for listening.
1: Yes. Thank you, Jing. And also, secondary shout out to Laced Sports on Twitter goes by at Ryan Grossman, who we've shouted out before. That's why he's getting the secondary shout out today. But he uh, did tweet earlier in the week. I don't remember who it was asked about uh, his favorite podcasts and uh, a basketball podcast. And he said, if we're talking NBA as a whole, nothing better than Joseph Charo and Joel Wolf on pound the rock. So we saw you, Ryan. We appreciate you. We know we've given you a shout out before, but you still deserve some special mention here after Jing got their well-deserved shout-out. That's it for me, Wolfon.
0: That's it for me, too. Uh, You guys know where to reach us if you want to hit us up and get a shout-out. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. I promise to talk about the Utah Jazz and Cleveland Cavaliers. We've put it off long enough, but hope you enjoyed this one. We'll talk to you all soon. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock.